Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. Today we will discuss Lesson 9 in your Gospel Doctrine Old Testament manual, God Will Provide Himself a Lamb. It is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Before we begin, however, I'd like to read an email from a listener. This comes from Sean in Conway, Arkansas. He says, I use your podcast for part of my teaching, as well as Ted Gibbons on LDS Living, which I mentioned in an earlier podcast, and of course the Gospel Doctrine Teacher's Manual. Like I said before, I love both of these sources for my lessons. Last week's lesson on Cain and Abel and Enoch went very well. Thank you. This week, on the other hand, I ran into a little bit of a problem because Brother Gibbons' lesson on LDS Living, he says basically, don't use this in Gospel Doctrine class, and with your podcast, there are things in it that aren't in the Gospel Doctrine Manual, so I'm afraid to use some of it because of some controversy that could come up. What are your thoughts on this? I'm new to this calling, and it can be nerve-wracking at times, but it's getting better. Well, first, Sean, I'd like to say this is the first email I've had from someone that I don't personally know that I've read on the program. And I don't know how you heard about our podcast, but it makes me so happy to hear from you because I don't know you. So that means that the word is getting out and it's wonderful. Uh, we, we do have our numbers are slightly improving every week. And so I'm, I'm overjoyed to hear from you. And second of all, let me say that I intend the podcast for teachers and those who want to be as prepared as teachers. And just because something is part of your preparation doesn't mean you have to use it. So I wouldn't advise you necessarily to shy away from controversy. I don't think it's necessary to introduce it into your class. It doesn't help anyone if they aren't wondering about the things that you bring up. But it doesn't hurt you to be familiar with two sides of an argument that might come up. And by argument, I, I mean in the classic sense of a discussion. It doesn't hurt you at all to be familiar with both sides of anything that might come up so that you can rationally and calmly explain it. And also, I've got to say that if you're listening to podcasts, you're reading blog entries, you're preparing so much for your lessons, then God will prepare you for what's necessary. I, I firmly believe that you're going you're gonna to be great in your calling, and I do thank you for writing in. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me here at Gospel Doctrine, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Give us your first name and town, and we'll be happy to feature your email as part of the program. Also, remember to give us your reviews on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really help to get the word out, get more people listening to the podcast. And if you happen to be hearing us on the SoundCloud website, uh, let me just say that we are listed in the most popular podcast search engine. So usually your podcast software will include one of those search engines. And if you just type in the name of the program, Gospel Talktrin, T-A-L-K, Trin as in doctrine, uh, then you should be able to pull that up within your smartphone or your tablet and take it with you. And that's the way uh, most people are listening to us, we find. Well, I'm really excited for this week's lesson. It's one of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of Abraham and his test when he's commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. And the chapters that we're studying this week are Genesis 15 through 17 and 21 and 22 and some of the chapters surrounding those. So we've been talking about Abraham now for two weeks. So hopefully you'll, you're a little bit familiar with who he is. 
But in case you haven't been, in case you're just joining us, uh, Abraham was an early patriarch, ninth in succession from Noah, and the Lord called him to found a great nation, to be a holy priest, and he became a prince of peace. He became someone with the priesthood of God, with great knowledge, and he moved from the land of Ur into the land what we know in most of the Old Testament as Canaan, which is modern-day Israel and parts of the surrounding countries. And Abraham was given the promise that he would inherit all of it and that he would be the father of a great nation. So that covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would have those lands, that he would be that founder of a great nation, comes into play in this lesson. Because as Abraham's family grows, as his importance grows, the fact that he did not yet have this posterity started to weigh heavily on him. And he began to wonder, is God really going to keep this covenant he made to me? Am I ever ever going to have children? And at long last, when he's 99 and his wife Sarah is 90, she's finally given the promise that within a year she'll have a son, which happens and Abraham is given the direction, name your son Isaac. Isaac becomes the son of the covenant. And sometime later, many years later, one day Abraham is commanded, take your son, take thy only son, as he's called, which even though he's not his only son, he's his only son through Sarah, take your only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, as an obedient man, wakes up the next morning, goes on a journey to the place that God has directed, and builds an altar and there he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac when an angel of the Lord appears and stops him from sacrificing Isaac. And they notice in a nearby thicket, a ram is caught by the horns and that ram becomes the sacrifice. But Abraham's willingness to do something this difficult became probably the most important example in all of Scripture. And it's cited throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's cited in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, and everyone uses it as an example of faithfulness. So we'll talk a little bit about what was going on for Abraham during all of this and what we can understand about what he might have been thinking. First of all, two weeks ago, we talked about Abraham's own sacrifice, and we know from the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, that Abraham was the victim of human sacrifice. His father was an idolatrous man, and Abraham at one point was bound on an altar. And it says in the book of Abraham that a child and three virgins were previously offered for sacrifice on this altar. And the way I read that is that Abraham himself witnessed these sacrifices. Otherwise, I don't know why they would have been mentioned in the book of Abraham. But whatever the case is, then Abraham is bound on this altar And as the priest raises his knife to plunge it into Abraham's chest or wherever he would have killed him, Abraham offers a prayer unto God, and then the angel of God appears, and this angel identifies himself as Jehovah, whether it's actually Jehovah or whether it's an angel in the posture of divine investiture of authority, which is one heavenly being speaking with the power of God. We don't know, but it's it's Jehovah saying, 
I'm here with you, Abraham. I will support you, and you are a righteous child unto me, and you will be given the priesthood. And then the priest, the evil priest, is struck down, and the altar is destroyed by the miraculous power of God. But through that experience, Abraham learned to hate human sacrifice and to know how terrible it was. He'd seen other people killed. He'd been almost killed himself. He'd seen what it did to his own father and how it turned him into an evil man willing to kill his own son. And that was Abraham's experience with it. And then after that, he learned of all the blessings of God and how wonderful it was to follow a God that called for us to obey commandments that brought out the best in us. And Abraham's sacrifice, Abraham's test, is well understood throughout the Christian world and the Jewish world. And by the way, in the Muslim world as well, for whom Abraham is considered a prophet. But only LDS scriptures specifically say Abraham suffered this same kind of fate beforehand. And so we're in a unique position to empathize with Abraham and to know how terrible this must have been for him. Because not only is he going to lose his son, but he also, by being the one who has to do the sacrificing, he is being ordered by God to put himself in the position of this idolatrous priest the person who was so evil that God had to take his life and save Abraham miraculously. And that was the position that Abraham was now being asked to take up. He was being asked to take up the position of his own father who would willingly put his son to the knife to serve an evil God. And that's just one reason why this would have been so difficult. Another reason is that Abraham had been told for decades that his son Isaac would be the promised son through whom he would receive all the promised blessings that he'd been, the promises that he'd been given. And now he's being told, and Isaac doesn't have any children yet, and Abraham is being told, you have to sacrifice your son Isaac. So in other words, all these promises that you waited so long to receive, they're now going to come to an end. In the most terrible way you can imagine, you're going to have to give up the, not only are you going to have to give up the blessings that God has given to you, but it's going to be by your own hand, and it's going to be in the most terrible, traumatic experience that you've ever survived. You're going to have to kill him in that experience. And thirdly, Abraham would have had reason from this revelation, he would have had from this request from God, he would have had reason to question the integrity of God himself. Think about it. Not only is God saying, you're going to do something that you know is wicked, but also you're going to do something that you know will void one of the promises that I've given you. So I'm giving you a contradictory command in two ways, and it goes against my very nature, and you know that I cannot lie. So Abraham is hearing this, receiving this revelation, understanding what God is asking of him, and it would have conflicted him to his very soul. It would have shaken him to the core. When I think about this story and other stories in which somebody's asked to do something, what for, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of when Nephi is asked to kill Laban in the early chapters of the Book of Mormon and other similar stories in the scriptures, I think, what form did that revelation take? How was Lehi asked to leave Jerusalem? How was Abraham told to, to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice? Were they told in a dream? Were they told in a prompting? Did God himself appear to these prophets and say, this is what you have to do? 
was it the still small voice? And, and I think it's a fascinating question because Abraham had to take what he'd previously received from God and weigh it against this new revelation. And he must have wondered, one of these th- two things that I've received is not true. Which one is more powerful? I think so often in our faith, in our modern faith, we think, if I'm doubting at all, then there's something wrong with me. Then I'm doing it wrong. I'm not proceeding in the way of the the sin inside of me or my own iniquity has given rise to this doubt. And therefore, all of my choices are flawed in some way because I don't fully believe in God. I don't have so much faith that I can just proceed with this without having any problem with it. But the story of Abraham, to me, tells us that there isn't necessarily anything wrong with doubt because it gives us enough support behind the idea that Abraham would have experienced doubt that it seems to me to be almost a given. There's, there's absolutely no way that Abraham could have gone through this experience without doubting almost the whole time. And like I said, shaken to the very core. So it wasn't just small doubts that Abraham was suffering, but he was doubting from the top to the bottom. Has everything God told me since I was a child been false? Has, or is the mode in which I received this latest revelation, is it somehow flawed? Because I've received other revelations in that same way. I've received other still small voice promptings or angels have appeared to me before. And... Were those all flawed? Why would God lie? How can God lie? I thought God was perfect. He's revealed so much to me, and it all depends upon the very atoms of nature obeying his word. And the reason that they do that is because his word can never be wrong. So all of these thoughts are going through Abraham's mind. And I love thinking about that because it makes me realize that Having doubt is not necessarily being separated from God. God is with Abraham in this entire process. And through the benefit of hindsight, that's part of the fun of this story. And I I use fun loosely, but it's part of the the fascinating nature of the story is that we know what Abraham doesn't, which is this is all a test. And at the end, God is going to reveal himself and say, of course, you're not going to kill your son, Isaac, Abraham. Uh, here's a here's a ram that is going to fulfill this commandment. But Abraham didn't know that. So we, we get to have that benefit and we get to know that the integrity of God is never in question. However, it does feel a little cruel, doesn't it? It feels like, why should Abraham have to go through that? Why should Abraham have to suffer so much anguish of mind and possibly even body with all the anxiety, with all the, the terrible suffering. Why, why would God want Abraham to go through that when it was all going to, when it didn't really mean anything and it was all going to come to nothing anyway. God was at the end going to say, oh, just kidding. And that is a, hum, a very human understanding of this story, that God was kidding in some way. So that's the first question. Was God lying when he said, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac? And this is such an important question because I know so many people, and myself included to a lesser degree than some, I know so many people who've received revelations to do something that that turned out bad for them. 
And I know women, for example, who were told, uh, you've got to marry this guy. Like they went to the temple and the the roof they describe, or at least in one case, the, they describe the roof falling down on their head saying, yes, this is the man for you. And then the marriage ended in divorce. And later that woman is left to question, well, was, was I really supposed to marry that guy? What, what did God mean telling me to marry that guy? I, and the assumption is this revelation is a promise that you'll be with this person forever. And then you find out later, what did that revelation mean? Are you being asked to sacrifice all the blessings that you've been promised because of someone else's decisions to throw away their covenants? And that's just one example. There's so many forms that this can take. There's so many times in our lives when we can be caused to doubt or a previous revelation from God or a previous promise from God can be thrown into question by present circumstance. And so... I think that's one of the, or that is definitely one of the many ways in which this story can be of value to us today, which is there are times when we will question the integrity of God. And I, my mission president used to say this, you will be tested like Abraham will. And that's not revolutionary doctrine in section 101, verse 4. It says, therefore, and he's, this is God speaking about the saints. Therefore, they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not endure chastening, but deny me, cannot be sanctified. So there is some element of this kind of test that is necessary for everyone. And nobody, I don't think, has ever been called upon to be tested so thoroughly as Abraham. So our, our tests will be of a lesser degree. But later on in the same section in verse 35, it says, All they who suffer persecution for my name and endure in faith, though they are called to lay down their lives for my sake, yet shall they partake of all this glory. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. Therefore, care not for the body, neither the life of the body, but care for the soul and for the life of the soul. And seek the face of the Lord always, that in patience ye may possess your souls, and ye shall have eternal life. And patience is really the key. That was Abraham had three days, when he was uh, when he was given this commandment. He rose up the next morning and started on his journey and took Isaac towards Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is the place where later the Temple of Solomon would be built. And the Israelites were commanded to offer sacrifices there for centuries upon centuries. And it's interesting that um, not only was the sacrifice of Isaac on the same mountain where the later Temple of Solomon would be built, but Jesus Christ himself was sacrificed nearby. Golgotha was not far away from the Temple Mount. It was within walking distance. And in fact, he was laden with the cross for much of it. So very, very near the similitude of Christ's sacrifice was the actual sacrifice of Christ. So what do we do when we question, this is the, this is the real lesson of, of the test of Abraham, what do we do when we question the integrity of God? Now there's an, uh, I have a take on this. Uh, there's an interesting scripture and this is actually found in Deuteronomy, but it's referred to later. Most of us know it because of 
because of the Savior's words in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 30. And the context of this is that Jesus is being questioned by one of the Pharisees, and he's asked, what is the first commandment? What say you? And Jesus says, the first commandment is, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And that, in, in, when he says that, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. So Jesus changes it slightly, and he adds this extra element of loving God with all of our mind. Now, we can talk another time about what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our might, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. But in Mark 12:30 specifically, Jesus introduces the idea of loving God with all of your mind. So as we're talking about the fact that the, all the questions that Abraham must have been having, keep that in mind that most of all, Abraham loved God. And he loved God not only with his heart, not only with his strength, but with his mind. And that was the only way he could have overcome these doubts. It was the only way he could have been obedient in the face of such heart-rending anguish. Well, we've discussed how much Abraham must have been suffering. But what about Isaac? What was going through Isaac's mind? First of all, quite often Isaac in this story, in depictions of the story, he's depicted as a child. But the fact is, we don't know exactly what Isaac's age was. We know simply that this event occurred before Sarah's death. And Sarah died at 127 years old, and Isaac was born when she was 90. And so therefore, sometime between the time when he was 12 and the time when he was 37. But there are Jewish traditions that put Isaac at 33 years old, exactly the age that Christ was when when he was killed. And the similarities, so this is an obvious, if that was in fact Isaac's age, this is an obvious reference to Jesus Christ. And the similarities don't end there. In fact, I could spend a whole lesson just talking about the similarities between Isaac in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jesus Christ. But just to list a few, first of all, Isaac was the prophesied son of the father. And his father was, the the name Abraham means, or Abram was his original name, exalted father, which was changed to Abraham, father of a multitude. So Abraham is obviously in the type of God the Father. So Isaac is the long-awaited son of the covenant. And his, his birth, his name was given to his father and his mother before he was born. And his mother conceived miraculously. His mother was 90 years old. And in the case of Mary, she conceived miraculously as well. A virgin birth and a birth by a woman who was postmenopausal. They're equally miraculous. And in both cases, it's, it's not the pregnancy that was impossible, but the conception itself. And it happened through the power of God. In, uh, in the book of Genesis, it refers to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Now, as we'll discuss, Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. So he wasn't exactly his only begotten son. So the word begotten has an extra significance And that's true of Jesus as well. Father, God the Father, is our heavenly Father. He's the Father of every spirit. And yet he calls Jesus his only begotten Son. And uh, they, they travel to Jerusalem 
which is where Mount Moriah is. There was no city there. Uh, later on, when David conquers the city, the Jebusites had built a fortress there. So sometime in between Abraham and David, the Jebusites had moved in, or maybe they were already nearby. But Abraham made easy access to Mount Moriah, but it's the same place, Jerusalem. And they traveled on a donkey, and Jesus has his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. It was the, it was the symbol of a king. That was how the kings entered their city in their culture. And Jesus, when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he said to his disciples, wait here and let me go forward and pray. And that's the same thing that Abraham and Isaac did. They brought their servants with them. And Abraham was the master of a great household. And so they had, they had attendants that traveled with them. And then they said to them, stay here. We're going to go forward and pray and sacrifice. And uh, Isaac, because Abraham was so old at this time, he, was, he would have been, if, if Isaac was 130 or was 33, then Abraham would have been 133. So he couldn't carry the wood for the sacrifice. It was going to be a burnt offering. So he placed that wood on Isaac's back. And much like Christ carries his own cross, Isaac carries the wood that he's going to be burned with. And um, there are places, in, in, and it says specifically in, in chapter 22 of Genesis, that Isaac was one with his father. And of course, Jesus says that many times in the Gospels. Or in the similitude of his father, that's mentioned again in chapter 26 and in the book of Abraham. And here's a very important difference. Now this is, I'm sure that Abraham thought long and hard about this, but obviously Isaac could not be overpowered by his father. And so Abraham knew for the three days that this journey took, he knew that Isaac was going to have to submit willingly to this. But he kept the information from him. They get to the top of Mount Moriah. Isaac has carried the wood and he's asked, he asks on the way up, he says, where's the, where's the sacrifice? animal, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to him, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's an interesting turn of phrase as well. Uh, and that's, I think, why it's the title of this lesson. Because one way of looking that, at it and one way of translating that verse, and there are many translations of that verse that say, God will provide to himself a sacrifice. But it has a double meaning. God will provide himself a sacrifice. He will provide comma or he will provide himself comma a sacrifice. He will be the sacrifice. In any case, they reach the top of Mount Moriah and Abraham says to Isaac, "All right, here is the revelation that I had from God." And Isaac voluntarily submits. So this isn't just a test for Abraham. As much as Abraham is put in the position of God the Father, Isaac is put in the position of Christ. And Abraham says, you're going to have to give up your life because of the word of God. And to his credit, Isaac doesn't take very long. He, just as Abraham receives this revelation, wakes up the next morning and, and starts, as conflicted as he must be, starts traveling with his attendants and with his son. And who knows what he told his wife. Um, Isaac hears the word and says, okay. And Abraham binds him to the altar, builds the altar, binds him to it. And 
moves forward with his plan and perhaps even goes as far as to raise the knife. Now, and here's, here's an interesting one. Everyone who accepts the gospel becomes the seed of Isaac. And you may have heard of the concept of being adopted into the house of Israel when you're baptized. And the house of Israel, Israel is just another name for Jacob, who is the son of Isaac. So everyone who receives the gospel obviously takes upon him the name of Christ, but is also adopted into the house of Israel. So is also the seed of, of Isaac. So all those are interesting parallels, and there are too many to ignore. Isaac is obviously a type of Christ. And in studying those, the question came up for me, why is it important if someone is, is, is a type of Christ? We see types of Christ throughout the scriptures. And so I was thinking, well, well, so what? So someone resembles Christ in some way. Why should that matter to me? I mean, Christ, we already have the story of Christ. Why do we need to study people who are like him? They're obviously not as good. Uh, Isaac is not a sinless man, although he was a righteous man. So why do I care if he's a type of Christ? And I think part of the answer, and there are probably many answers to the question, but one of the answers I came up with was found in how much, if you if you become familiar, and we'll discuss even more reasons why Abraham would have suffered, but if you become familiar with how much he would have suffered in order to make this commandment in order to keep this commandment of God and how much Isaac would have suffered, then your mind almost rebels at the idea that this would happen. And by the time they get to the top of Mount Moriah, you're thinking, it's not fair. It is absolutely unjust that, that it's, and it's so stupid and it's so unneeded that Isaac would have to be killed for no reason. Why would Isaac have to be killed? Isaac didn't do anything wrong. And the more we're thought to feel or made to feel that, the more that thought rises in our heart to the point where it becomes an actual emotion, then the more empathy we have for Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we are taught, one of, the, one of the first things we're taught about the gospel is that Jesus died for us. But we're never taught, or hardly ever, or far less often, we're taught to be offended by that fact. We're... we're or maybe not offended, but outraged. Why would Jesus have to die? It's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus would have to die. Jesus earned only joy. His life earned him endless joy, and yet he had to suffer most of all. And perhaps some of that injustice is brought home to us when we can see a type of Christ in someone else. So that's one reason why types of Christ are very helpful to recognize and to study And obviously they teach us more about Jesus Christ and they remind us of what Christ did for us. And then, as I said, they motivate us to put ourselves in that position because because it's a person who's who's going through this, it's easier to feel a kinship with them when we we don't get what it must have been like to be Jesus Christ and work out an infinite atonement. We can't understand that, but we can understand on some level what it must be like to be asked to give up your son or to kill him yourself. And so that brings home to us what Christ went through and what God the Father went through in a way no other story could. And then the ram appears. And it's interesting 
that there's a double type of Christ in this story. Isaac is obviously this this symbol of Christ, but then Isaac doesn't have to suffer what he was asked to undergo. The ram takes it upon himself. And it's interesting to think. Now, in the Law of Moses, the sacrificial animals were commanded to be animals without blemish. And this ram was caught by his horns in a thicket, meaning he wasn't, he didn't fall upon a rock or he wasn't damaged in any way so that Abraham could catch him. Uh, but, But he was captured alive. And that's about just about the only way that could happen. And this ram, because he was captured alive and his horns were what were trapped, he would have been without blemish. And that was obviously another symbol of the Savior's sinless life was that he was a sacrifice without blemish. Now, the difference between Abraham's sacrifice and Isaac's is all the difference in the world, and that is that Isaac did it willingly. And that's the difference between an idolatrous God, an idolatrous priest, and Abraham. That's the difference between every human sacrifice ever offered and Jesus Christ who offered himself. Uh, an idolatrous God. Now think about how many people would believe in an idolatrous God if the priest, the wicked priest, was sacrificing the believers. People would be like, why am I believing in this God? It's just, just going to get me killed. What wicked priests did was they sacrificed those who didn't believe. They'd find somebody who didn't believe in their cult and they would kill those people. And what Abraham is asked to do is kill someone who does believe. And that's what Jesus Christ had to do. He had to sacrifice himself, believing most of all, knowing perfectly well that God was God and knowing his place in the plan. So that's another thing that this story teaches us, is that when we choose, our agency is crucial. And in fact, we may have chosen our own trials. It's crucial to our progress within God's plan. And it makes all the difference. And if we're brought in against our will, that's Satan's plan. So it's a perfect depiction. It's a perfect illustration of the difference between the plan of Satan, the counterfeits of Satan, human sacrifice, the counterfeit of Satan, of the atonement, and the actual plan of God. Now, this wasn't just Abraham's sacrifice This is an angle that I haven't thought of before, but as I was preparing, I thought, you know, Sarah was kept in the dark, largely kept in the dark, probably, about what Abraham was going to do. I can't imagine that he would have received this revelation from God and then told her about it, and she would have been okay with it. But maybe she would have. Uh, But it seems like she would have have, uh, delayed the trip at the very least, and she didn't. So let's assume for the sake of argument, that she didn't know about it. In any case, let's let's look a little bit at Sarah's life. Uh, first of all, if you do the math on some of the stories in, in this particular part of Genesis, you'll realize that Sarah was in her late 70s when she offered Hagar. Now, this, this is a part of the story I didn't go into, but uh, Abraham had been given these promises of great posterity, and when, by the time Sarah, his wife, was in her late 70s, nothing had happened, no children. Finally, she brings her handmaid to Abraham and says, take my handmaid to wife, and maybe this will be the way that God will keep his covenant with you. 
And so Abraham goes to the Lord and the Lord approves it. And so he takes the handmaid to wife. And when she conceives a child, then her attitude towards Sarah becomes one of contempt. And she feels like now she's the boss of the household. And Sarah goes to Abraham. They have, they have a little dispute or perhaps a big dispute. And she says, she, you know, her, her attitude towards me is now one of mockery and disrespect. And God instructs Abraham, and she says something, now judge between me and thee. And uh, because of the colon before that phrase, uh, some scholars believe that she is, she changes from talking to Abraham to talking to Hagar. So in other words, God will be the judge between me and you, Hagar, instead of me and you, Abraham. And in any case, Abraham takes the side of Sarah as, as God instructs him. So Hagar flees into the wilderness and has this revelation by a well of water where God tells her, you're going to call your son Ishmael, and I've heard your prayer, and, and Ishmael means God hears, and I need you to go back and, and live with and change your attitude a little bit and continue to live with Abraham. So Abraham raises his son Ishmael and loves him, absolutely adores him. And all the while, it's still understood on some level that the covenant son will come through Sarah. And so when that, when that revelation finally occurs that, okay, within the year, Sarah, you're going to have your child, then the attitude of Hagar and Ishmael change once again. And the boy Isaac is born and he is tormented by, by Ishmael. Now we don't have a lot of evidence in Genesis about what form this actually took, but it says that he mocked him. But in Jewish tradition, and later on it does say in Genesis that uh, Ishmael became an archer, but in Jewish tradition, in, in certain Midrash sources, the the idea is floated that that Ishmael actually threatened Isaac's life and tried to kill him with a bow and arrow. So it, it went beyond mockery. It was actual physical threats and cruelty. And it got to the point where Sarah insists that Abraham eject Hagar and Ishmael. And in the chapter before Abraham is given the covenant to take Isaac and sacrifice him, he's given the commandment to take Ishmael out into the wilderness. And this is just a fascinating, fascinating parallel as well. Because in two successive chapters, now I've never thought about this before, this lesson, and this is something you can find, I've mentioned before the book, The Hidden Christ by James Farrell. This is something you can find there. But in two successive chapters of Genesis, Abraham, Abraham has to sacrifice two of his sons. The first one, he thought, and, and he even prayed at one point, may Ishmael live before thee, God. In other words, I, I, I wish this covenant could be kept through Ishmael because he loves his son Ishmael so much, but he can feel that that's not really what's going to happen, and he can feel how much it's going to hurt his son Ishmael. And then, and then it just absolutely broke his heart when they couldn't live together, when Ishmael refused to be reconciled to the son of the covenant. Now, in this story, we can find so many parallels for our own life. We can find parallels to man in general, the 
the state of man in the plan of salvation. So if Isaac is a type of Christ, Ishmael is a type for all of us. We are not reconciled to God, and therefore we have to be cast out into the lone and dreary world. And we'd go through more of the aspects of the story if we had time, but first of all, he runs out of water, and he calls upon God, and God reveals to Hagar where she can find water, a well. And so many places in the scriptures, we're told that we have to constantly rely upon God as we travel our way through this life. And we don't know where our, our next uh, daily bread is coming from. So Ishmael is cast out. He's, he's out of the presence of the Father. And he's forced to make his way in the world. And that's exactly what happens with us. We're forced to be out of God's presence because we wouldn't be willing God already knows we wouldn't be willing if we were called upon to be on Mount Moriah and carry our own bundle of sticks up to the top to be a burnt sacrifice. We wouldn't have been willing to do that. Or that's the presumption by the similarity that exists between us and Ishmael. So in that story, we're Ishmael and Isaac is Christ. And that's sort of fascinating. And Abraham has to sacrifice both of them. But Sarah has already made so many difficult choices with regard to her family, with regard to her husband. And in fact, she'd been promised this this wonderful posterity, but then she's in her late 70s. And we can presume even then she'd already gone through menopause and she had another 12 years before she would be conceiving a son. And so she offers her maid, her handmaid, to her husband. And so it's interesting to me, the way I see it is, 12 years before Isaac would even be born, or 13 years, she'd already given him up. She'd already done what Abraham would have to be commanded to do later, and she did it for love of her husband, rather than being commanded to do it by God. So in some ways, her sacrifice is even greater. And... You know, we, we often think about what God went through to watch his only begotten son perform the atonement. But we don't often think about what Heavenly Mother would have gone through. Her suffering would have been just as intense. So that's why it's interesting to think about Sarah in all of this. And Sarah had been given uh, that promise, but then was willing to give it up and watched as Hagar's offspring, Hagar's son Ishmael, was given the same promise and uh, it was it, it may have been known to Sarah that Hagar was promised that through her son would come a mighty nation. And that was exactly the form that her promise had taken. And so she probably felt like, my promise has been taken from me and given to another. In other words, she had all the same conflicts that Abraham would have had later. She just underwent them willingly rather than by commandment. And she passed her test as well. She loved God and she loved her husband more than she loved herself and more than she needed to have these things fulfilled for herself. She needed to have them fulfilled for those she loved. We don't have a lot of scriptural basis to know what our Heavenly Mother is like, but I have to believe that this is a wonderful type of her in the same way that Abraham is a type of God the Father. So as I promised before, let's return now and think a little bit more about loving God with your mind. 
So the state Abraham was in when he was given this commandment was a state of extreme doubt and conflict and anxiety. And he proved faithful to it. And so let's talk about what it means to love God with all your mind. Abraham had every reason in the world to think that God was false and to stop believing. And he chose instead, while he was unsure, he chose to act in a way that was in accordance with God's commands. Even though he had, he had so many reasons and so many evidences that it couldn't be right. I think most of us at some point have felt betrayed by God. Did God promise you something? Maybe you have a promise in your patriarchal blessing. Maybe you had a priesthood blessing. Or maybe you had a prompting or a dream that meant something to you. You felt like God is giving you a promise for the future. And the example I came up with, and I know it's a stupid one, but I I don't want to touch too closely on anything that might be what people are really going through. So my example is, what what if you felt like God promised you a career as an actor and instead... You became an accountant, and maybe you tried to be an actor and nobody wanted you in their movie or in their play. So think about that for a minute, and then here's, here's how you love God with your mind in that situation. You might, you might sit down and you might make a list. Okay, on the left hand you put, okay, here's what I wanted, here's what I thought God was promising me. He promised me that I'd be an actor, and on the right you put accountant. What do you have in your life? Because you became an accountant. Well, maybe, you know, you met your wife, Betty, because she was going to management school while you were in accountant school. So that's that's one blessing, and that might be what God had in mind. And maybe your work as an accountant has allowed you to make more money than you would have made it an actor, so you, you're better able to provide for your family. So that's another thing that God might have had in mind. And maybe you can make a list, and you can get creative. You can make a list of five or ten things, and I really think it should be as long as you can make it, of of what God might have been thinking when instead of making you an actor, he made you an accountant. And and the example I gave before was one from the past, you know, he and somebody might have, this theoretical person, he might have met his wife because he was in accountancy school. That's in the past. Have as many of these reasons, if you, if you, if you've ever felt this way, have as many of these reasons have to do with the future. So because I'm an accountant, I may one day have the opportunity to do X. Because I'm an accountant, I may have the skills to provide service in a, a particular way. And once you've made that list, then watch for it. And that, that is how you, that's one way in which you can love God with your mind is by saying, I don't know. I don't know why the, this promise that God has made me didn't come to pass, but I can guess at a few reasons why it might be, and some of them might be true. So I'm going to watch for those things. And in the case of Abraham, I mean, part of the reason this, this worked was because Abraham did not know that it was a test. But there are certain tests that you and I will go through. We have absolutely no reason to doubt that it's a test, and it still works. And a lot of those things have to do with waiting. Okay, I was promised that this would happen in my life, and I'm still waiting. And maybe it's now too late. So many people feel this way, that God has promised me certain blessings in my life, and I've been waiting. 
had an interesting experience in a fireside where Elder Christofferson spoke, and, and I, I was maybe on the third row, and as he was talking, and this was a group of single people, and it was mid-singles, and so everybody's over 31, and some of them as old as you know 50 and beyond. And he made an interesting statement. He said, I know that so many of you are concerned about time. He said, but I want you to know something. There is enough time for you to receive every blessing that you've been promised. And I don't know what form that will take. And this is, this is from memory. I didn't take notes because I just wanted to listen. But he made an apostolic promise. And he said, God can bless you with everything he's promised you. And you have enough time to do the things in your life that are the most important. And as he was saying it, I felt the truth of it. I, it wasn't just that I thought, oh, that's, that's a nice feeling. It was that in that moment, it was an absolutely true statement. And I don't know what it means. But I do know that the promises, the, the largest promises, the best promises of God are extended to those who, quote-unquote, wait upon the Lord. That is really the only thing that we're called to come into this world to do, is to wait upon the Lord. And as I've said before, and I'll say again, we are subject to time in this world, and time is a foreign state to us. It is something we're, as spiritual beings, we're not used to. And so it feels strange that we should have to wait for anything. And, and little babies are not good at waiting. We, we have to get used to this idea of waiting, to having patience, to even knowing what patience is all about. And Abraham would have had to develop extreme patience over the course of his life. And at the end of that life, as the crowning achievement, and, and this is, I call it the crowning achievement because once God appears and says, Abraham, touch not the lad, lay not your hands upon him because... I've provided another sacrifice. And then God reaffirms all of the promises of Abraham. They all come home at this moment. And it's almost like Abraham has been called to become a king and a priest unto God. And at that moment, he's called as a king and a priest unto God. His calling and election is made sure. Once he passes his test, then God says, you've done enough. I now know no matter what I ask of you, you will, you will do it. Here's the sealing power. Here's your calling and election. You absolutely have every blessing you've ever been promised. The culmination of Abraham's whole life, and he lived many years beyond that, but the culmination of his whole life was realized in that moment. And so we, we feel like, because we've been called upon to have patience, that that waiting will never have an end. But we can see from the life of Abraham, I mean, he lived until, very few of us have lived until the age of 130, or the age of 140, however old he was. Uh, nobody's lived that long, but very few of us have lived until the age of 100 when our, our covenant child is born. Uh, there may be some listener out there who has, and if so, uh, please send me an email. I'd love to read your story on the air. The point is our, our patience is really the determining factor on whether we're loving God with our mind. And it's not just whether we're willing to wait, but it's whether we're willing to find a reason to believe in God, whether we're willing to choose belief. You know, there's a, a fascinating and powerful 
conference talk given by Elder Whitney Clayton called Choose to Believe. And I review that one every so often because it's so powerful. And he says, you know, we always think that belief is something that will just accidentally happen to us, but you're not going to believe accidentally any more than you're going to accidentally pray or pay your tithing. None of those things happen by accident, and belief is the same way. Belief doesn't come upon you because God makes it impossible for you not to believe. In fact, as Abraham learned, God is going to give you obstacles to your belief to find out whether you'll choose it anyway. And that's what it means to love God with your mind. And if, you know, think about how powerful an example Abraham is throughout the centuries. And you'll understand how amazing it is, how wonderful the promises are to those who will love God with all their mind. And the things we need to do to love God with all our mind, to to follow in the footsteps of somebody who actually became a symbol of God the Father is actually as easy as choosing to believe and exercising patience to wait upon the Lord. Well, those are my insights for the story of Abraham and Isaac. May we choose to believe. May we wait upon the Lord. And if, if we're put in the position of Isaac where we need to voluntarily submit ourselves to the will of the Father, may our choice be immediately yes. These are difficult things. They're not easy. But let's prepare ourselves to choose to believe and wait upon the Lord. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.